0: And I said, Jerry and Linda were here, and I said, "Okay, I, I just changed the sign. Of, you know, it's, we change it every decade." And I put on there, I put on, "He is risen, indeed." And Jerry says right away, "In body too." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then I had to check with Linda: is "Indeed" one word or two words? And I thought, "Oh, my fourth grade teacher is is sad." I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and to me, this is the most special day of the year. I was talking to Monty, and I said, how could God be so gracious to save two wretched sinners like Monty and me? And he agreed, because he knows me. Um, just, just some um, housekeeping and other announcements, be sure to wish Paul— uh, happy birthday later on. He has been working. <coughs> Paul is a gift from God to our church. Uh, he's, he's a humble man, but he's been helping us out with the sound system. In the back. Yes. Yeah. Special K, Paul Kenemo. We have two special Ks that were in the back. But he's been helping us out with such incredible knowledge of sound systems, and we're going to recognize some other people next week with that. Um, Moms and dads, it's okay to take photos of your kids up here. That We're family. Um, I want to thank the men who helped put these speakers up, and there were no injuries except I put my foot through the ceiling in the back, and I had a friend say, well, now your church is holy. (laughs) We're still collecting missions for Ukraine um, and, and outreach to help refugees that are going into Poland. So if you want to mark that on your check or put it in an envelope, it goes in the offering box. It's in the back. And keep in mind that we have a luncheon next week. You can see that in there. And for visitors, we have restrooms and coffee downstairs along with a crying room or a nursing room uh, with a TV.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing these beautiful children sing. I'm reminded last week we celebrated Palm Sunday and when Christ came to town, the the children cried out, Hosanna, God save us now. And I'd like to hear that again as they lead us in songs in just a moment to hear the the beauty of the children sing praises out to God. Today we gather together the first day of the week. It is Resurrection Day. People call it Easter and that's fine to call it that, but we often call it Resurrection Sunday because the first day of the week is that. Indeed, that is why we worship today and not Saturday or Sabbath. Christ rested in the grave, but today he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, his people gathered together then to commemorate every Lord's Day, every first day of the week about his resurrection. Today is just a special day in which we remember that and focus on that in more particular. In your text here, in the worship folder, middle paragraph, As we say, truly he is risen. It is a fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. As we gather together to worship Christ today, that is my challenge for you to examine your own heart. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? I want you to prepare your heart to worship him and to hear Christ proclaimed in the Songs of the Children. In our songs collectively as we sing together, in the reading of the resurrection account in John chapter 20, and even in the proclamation and explanation of the resurrection message to come, I'll give you a moment to prepare your heart, ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind, confess your sin, to prepare to worship Jesus Christ this day, and then I'll pray for us corporately. And then we'll hear these beautiful voices of these children sing out praise to the risen Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we have gathered together here to worship you. It is because Christ has risen from the dead that we have hope beyond this life. We have hope in Christ and Christ alone. I do pray for those that do not belong to Christ. They might belong to him even this day. Across the land, no matter what the circumstances are, and across the world in great tribulation or great triumph that people might be experiencing, I pray they will ultimately see the triumph of Jesus Christ our Lord over sin, over the devil, over death. I pray that they would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ even this day. I pray for those of us who do belong to Christ. I pray that our hearts would be even warmer, continually longing for that communion with you to indeed be in your presence and have joy beyond our imagination. I'm thankful for the good gifts that you have given to us, even these children who will sing out praises to the risen Lord as they come to lead us in that. I pray that we will exalt in your name glorify you in all we do, find our ultimate satisfaction in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in his matchless, risen, triumphant name we pray. Amen. is not that beautiful no wonder jesus said suffer the little children to come to me all oh, that we might be like little children Blake will come to lead us now in our hymn 270 Christ the lord has risen today Let's all stand together 270 Christ the lord has risen today hallelujah
0: of Nazareth, which was crucified, is risen, Mark 16, 6, Christ arose,
2: 273.
0: singing this morning. Let's turn to number 268. 268 we'll sing the Risen Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Philippians 3:10. 268.
3: Good morning church. What a beautiful day to praise the Savior. Amen. He is risen. There we go. This morning we're going to be reading John chapter 20. It's going to be John the entire book of chapter 20. In your pew Bible if you don't have your Bible this morning that's going to be page 906. Page 906 in your pew Bible. This morning, as we celebrate the risen Savior, I like to focus on the empty grave, the most powerful and important event in the history of the universe. Our shackles of slavery to sin fell off, and our lordship in Christ and his blessings began. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going onward, or excuse me, they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, receive the holy spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld now thomas one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when jesus came so the other disciples told him we have seen the lord but when he said when he said to them unless i see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we praise your name today. Father, we praise you for the many blessings, God, that we do not deserve today. We are wretched and totally depraved sinners apart from Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross, God, and we thank you for the empty tomb, the empty grave, the turning point in the history of the universe. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for the sound of children today. We thank you for godly parents that want to raise their children in the fear and admonition of your name. Lord, may we preach and live the word faithfully in our homes. Lord, may the children never forget what they've seen today and it stick with them for a lifetime. Help us to set a godly example that glorifies Christ alone and only only points our children to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, again, help us to be servants in all aspects of our lives, Lord, servants of the gospel of Christ, servants of one another in the church, servants at home, and servants in the workplace. Lord, may the world see a differentiated people, a people not living for this world in its temporary pleasures. We thank you, God, again for a church that desires sound teaching. Help us to continue to esteem your word in all that we do. We ask, God, that you continue to bring more brothers and sisters who have a hunger for your scriptures. Lord, today we desire to exalt your name, and we ask for you to open our hard hearts and minds, first in song and worship, and then through the preaching of your word. We ask today, Lord, that you break any hard heart here and save anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. We also ask, Lord, that you give us opportunity and the strength to proclaim the gospel this week, anywhere we reside, the workplace, the marketplace. Give us the opportunity. We ask, Lord, that you bless the offering this morning and help us to use it for your glory alone. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ.
2: Amen. Amen.
1: indeed, we should ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Ladies are going to come, the Nelson family, to sing a hymn. If you notice in your worship folder, it's written by Daryl Bagley. Perhaps you know Daryl. He's ill and at home, but tuning in, thanks to the audio video, we've been able to put up for some of our members. uh, Be in prayer for Daryl. Daryl often sends me... uh, a hymn that he writes. He's good at writing poetry. Uh, He'll hear a sermon, and then he'll write a hymn about it. It's an amazing gift, and they're very well. I think uh, Sharon will probably be singing one next week, so you'll get a double dose of that. But today, the Nelson family will be coming to sing this hymn that Daryl wrote, Can You Imagine? And I think it's based, at least in part, certainly for this, Uh, from Acts chapter 2, and I'll read a text of Scripture, and then the ladies will come. By the way, Daryl wrote this 44 years ago. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible to be held by it. singing that for us today. I invite you, if you will, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I've been going through the Gospel of John on a regular basis, but we're in chapter 21, and that's post-resurrection. This morning, what I thought I would do is really go beyond that and look at the preaching of these apostles. The righteousness of God is vindicated in the triumph of Jesus over sin and death. And as we've heard in our singing and our reading, the sin was atoned for on the cross. Jesus died. And then he was buried, but the grave could not prevail over this righteous one. He rose the third day today, a day in which we, as I mentioned, remember every Lord's Day, but today is a special focus on Christos Anesti. The resurrection, then, is a central part of the gospel It is central to the preaching of the gospel. As these apostles would go forth across the world, that is what they would preach, the resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, 23, as I read earlier, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that God had planned and prepared this all along, for his purposes. They, of course, in their sinful response, as we've read through the Gospel of John, by their own will, desired to kill him, and indeed they are guilty. They are lawless men. But even in that greatest evil, God brought about the greatest good because God raised him up. He loosened the pains then of death, and with Christ, what a, what a unique thing, because death was not able to hold him, he indeed is the righteous one. Christ triumphed over lawless men. He triumphed over the devil. He triumphs over sin, evil, and all of its consequences. Most notably, something we're familiar with, death, which will come to us all. We will all face death. But for those that belong to Christ, we have hope beyond this life, beyond the grave. All of those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. They will be given a glorified body, if you will. It'll have a correspondence, but yet there'll be a uniqueness to it. Paul discusses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I noted some of that in your worship folder. It's a glorified state. It's a unique state. It is the state in which Christ rose from the dead. Paul would tell the church at Rome in Romans 8:11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and might I stop here so you understand theologically, everyone who belongs to Christ, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Okay, If you're not in Christ, you don't have that Holy Spirit. But if you're in Christ, Christ sends the Holy Spirit, we learn from John 14, and everyone who is in Christ has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. So imagine that. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and then you die. It would necessarily result that He will then give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. You see, it will not be possible for you to remain If the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that's the imagery and picture given. Just like it was impossible for Christ to remain, (coughs) he must rise. And so all of those in Christ will certainly rise as well. This is central to the gospel, that is, the resurrection. Someone had pointed out once to me, I don't remember recall who, but they had mentioned that a lot of gospel tracts good as they might be, talking about sin, forgiveness in Christ, but a lot of them leave out the resurrection. Now that I've mentioned that, go look at some of the tracts that you give. I'm not suggesting they're doing it on purpose, but it's easy to forget the significance of the resurrection. I assure you it wasn't forgotten by the apostles. This was central to their preaching. Paul will put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, A gospel in creedal statement, if you will, by creed we mean something that is memorable and something that was part of the church, an expression that they would use quite a bit. He would say in 15.3, he says, I delivered to you, first of importance, that's what I received with Christ. This is what is primary in his message that Christ died according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures uh, pointed to, prophesied about, promised, and it is fulfilled. And this is the core of the message that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he what? He rose again. And all of that is in accordance with the Scripture. He would ascribe various aspects of the resurrection as it relates to the believer. He ends this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, he says I tell you a mystery. A mystery would be something that isn't Previously fully known, right? Hence a revelation, if you will. He says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We'll all not sleep. And it's a beautiful way to describe, and he's only describing those that are in Christ here. When the believer dies, he is asleep. He's asleep, waiting for an awakening, the resurrection. He says we will be changed. That is, that body itself will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body, that's the body you have now that we get sick and will die, it will put on imperishable, and this mortal body will put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass that saying, as it is written, that is according to the Scriptures, get it? death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, that is who this is for. Be steadfast, immovable. And as Rodney said, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In vain in the sense that it is temporary and transitory. The, the other, all our other labor, although we must be responsible in what we do and engage in various uh, things that are part of life and survival and help and responsibilities, but all of those are temporal and recognize the priority. Labor in the Lord is eternal. It is eternal weight of value. It is great encouragement, at least for me, and I hope for you, if indeed you have ears to hear. But as I thought through this resurrection, and we could go on and encourage you in that regard, but I also had another question I ran across in my reading, and it caused me to pause and think, and that is, what does this day mean for the unbelievers? you know, the ones that are outside. I mean, with this great and glorious truth that we're mentioning here, I mean, we're reasonably full on Easter morning, but this should be beyond standing room only. Overflow to hear this message. Are you kidding? Is there any other better news in this life than to know this? What do we say to unbelievers? The world, who are essentially many, describe them as atheists. They don't believe. Maybe they're antagonistic ultimately against Christ and the apostles and those that would preach this resurrection. They reject this resurrection, maybe they're just agnostic, they don't know for sure, but certainly indifferent and apathetic. Is there a message this day, the resurrection, does it mean anything? Here's what it means, fair warning, there is certain judgment coming, and I know it might seem hard and harsh But you know, the most loving thing that you could do if you were in the middle of Ukraine right now and you knew a missile was going to hit a building is you'd tell everybody to get out, wouldn't you? Well, let me tell you what. There's something much more explosive coming, and that is judgment on sin and the devil and all evil. And your only refuge and your only shelter there is only one. It is in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. This is what the apostles preached. This is what they proclaimed. In the resurrection, it wasn't just this great joy for the believers, which it is. For those that in Christ, we will be raised. But it's also fair warning to those that are outside. And if you're outside of Christ even now, if you don't belong to him, this is fair warning for you as well. And a call of grace to come to Christ even now. In the Acts of the Apostles, this is essentially a historical account of what happened after the resurrection. These apostles, equipped by Christ, went everywhere Preaching and warning and calling people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And we can look at a number of these accounts, but this morning I thought we would focus in Acts chapter 17. Just to give you some insight into the meaning of the resurrection derived from their preaching. A message that was very relevant at that time and place, and even more so today. It is the message of the assurance of the triumph of righteousness. The triumph of righteousness and this righteous one will mean certain judgment for the unrighteous. Both sides of the coin are here. The key text, if I probably won't have time to expound fully on this because what I want to do is really, since this is a historical account, I want to walk through the narrative rather than just read it and explain along the way and draw your focus to, if you're in Acts 17, to verse 30 through 31. And I'm going to drive to that point and I'll mention a few things about that, most of which you can take Away as you re uh, examine this at a future time. But notice this text, and this is what really intrigued me in this resurrection. Paul is in Athens, he's proclaiming a risen Christ to a city that is essentially pagan, for the most part. They are engaged in their own. Um Intellect and wisdom as they think they have it. They express it in all of the idolatry going on. And as we'll learn, that's really an understatement. They were wise in their own eyes and really foolish. They're foolish in the fact that they ultimately reject the wisdom of God. And now you can see how it's so applicable to this day as well. This is the heart of man. But what is the message, this key message that he gives in verse 30 and 31, the times of ignorance, that is prior to resurrection. In the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, right now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see that? All people everywhere to repent. Why? Because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. That is Jesus Christ. And how do you know that? How do you know that is certain? Here is the certainty he gives, and of this he has given assurance, certainty, absolute verity to all by raising him from the dead. That's the message of the resurrection. It is a proclamation of this resurrection, and it is a call to repentance and faith. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will grant us insight into your word. I pray by the Holy Spirit that you will awaken the dead and raise them to newness of life. For the lethargic, I pray that you will grant us great energy. May our priority be worship of you, and may we find our resolve and our refuge in Christ and Christ alone. I pray this in his matchless, triumphant name, amen. Amen. All right, we're at Acts 17. Let me walk you through this historical account. As I mentioned, we're going to get to, in just a bit, Paul. He finds himself in a pagan city of Athens, Greece. How'd he get there? Well, if you go back to the beginning here, Paul and Silas, they pick up young Timothy, Paul's protégé. He wrote a couple books, right? 2 Timothy. They're on a missionary journey. They're preaching what? The gospel, that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel, the heart of it. And so here they go, and they begin in verse 1 here in chapter 17. When they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. That's a city, and you remember we have First and 2 Thessalonians, right, comes from this area where Paul writes to the church that was established. Well, here he is establishing the church, and in Thessalonica he went, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as is custom, and on three Sabbath days he, he did what? He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that would be the Messiah, That's who they were looking for, ostensibly. He shows them from the scriptures how this Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And then he said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you. He's preaching Jesus Christ died, buried, and risen. He's showing them from the scriptures how Jesus fulfilled all all that was prophesied about him, including this resurrection, which is essential to this truth. He's showing them from the scriptures, that is, from the word of God, because they recognize that as an authoritative source. It's an authoritative message. The response to his preaching to them about Christ about Jesus being the Christ and fulfilling it, some believed. And hence they founded a church. But if you read the text on, you'll find that most did not. He stirred up trouble because this preaching of Christ and him crucified and raising from the dead, it brought about a stumbling block to their little religious system. And so they run him out of town, which is good because then the gospel goes forward. It's evil they run him out, but good that he goes on and he goes to Berea, and we might be familiar with that passage. That's in verse 11. He says these Jews there, he goes in and does the same thing, they were more noble than Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness. And notice what they did. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And that's what we ask for everyone. You don't stand there with an open mind. Get an open Bible. Right? Read it and see if these things are so. That is the objective source that we look to. Is what we base it on. So, that was good. That was positive. However, then the crowd comes down from Thessalonica and they arrive and begin a bit of a riot to stir up trouble and cause problems because the gospel going forward and they didn't like it, so they came on down to Berea and stirred up trouble. And, of course, Paul is the center of it because he is the spokesman. He's preaching this, and so they get together with him, and they want to protect Paul, so they put him on a boat and send him 200 miles south to Athens, Silas and Timothy, remain behind, and Paul is sent on for his own safety, and he winds up in Athens, Greece, and that's where we pick up with the narrative that I want to focus on today of this message of the resurrection that he, that he gives in Athens. He's been giving it all along, right? But now here we're into Athens. That's verse 16. So Paul was waiting for them. That's he's waiting for his Paul for Silas and Timothy and whoever else was with him. He is waiting now. He's arrived in Athens. And he's waiting and he looks around and verse 16 his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I mentioned that was an understatement. It actually is. Petronius, a Roman Author and a contemporary of Paul, he wrote this concerning Athens. It was easier to find a god in them than a man in the city of Athens. <laughs> it's one of their own writing about the city. So, whatever you imagine it to be at that time, full of idols. Yeah, indeed, full of idols. And Paul's response to that was his, he says, his spirit was provoked. A bit heartbroken, if you will. I would say Paul was a big fan of a pluralistic culture. (laughs) I mean, everybody had their own ideas about all kinds of stuff and made monuments to it, if you will. No, that brought about blasphemy to God, and that's why he is provoked with righteous indignation. It is blasphemy because there is only one God, a true God, the only God. And so here he goes to the city as he would normally do then. He goes to the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. So he reasons, verse 17, note, he's in the synagogue with the Jews. And he reasons with them. He's reasoning with them in the scriptures like he's done everywhere else, and he's with devout persons, those who did fear God to some degree. He says he also was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That, that was the, 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 just the place of commerce, if you will, and so here he would speak to Gentiles as well. He's reasoning with them about the gospel, that Christ died. He was buried, and this was a key part of the communication of the gospel, that he rose again. That is the Jesus that he proclaimed to them. That Jesus is Christ. In the marketplace, he came across secular people, and here two groups are noted in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and their response was, What does this babbler wish to say? Babbler, here, by the way, is an idiom. It means literally seed picker. The idiom was the idea that here's a guy with a, like a bird that goes around picking at garbage and grabbing little scraps. He has some knowledge, but it's just random and varied and not cogent. He just is full of information that really doesn't mean much and is essentially garbage. Athens, as I mentioned, is the center, at least at that time, of the intellectually elite. It was home to Socrates, if you remember Plato and Aristotle. At this time, two dominant philosophies prevailed and they're identified here in our text, verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans was a is a world view, if you will, a philosophy, a thought of man it It was founded by a fellow by the name of Epicurus, and they taught that man 's goal was to seek pleasure and avoid pain. They thought that God really wasn't involved with mankind at all. by the way, here they're um, hearing God's apostle, but they're saying God was not involved with man and that your human flesh, the body, just returned to dust. There is no immortal soul. So you can see why it becomes foolishness as Paul preaches about the resurrection of the dead. The Stoics, founded by Zeno, their goal was to reach a place in life in which you could be really indifferent to pain or pleasure. Self-control was the the means to to glorify yourself, if you will, to not be overcome by your own self-will to destructive emotions. Virtue then became the source of boasting. They also... Rejected life after death, were a bit more agnostic about it, but nevertheless rejected this whole idea of resurrection. Verse 18, others said he, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. This is the, the, they, they don't really understand where he's coming from because, note this, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The, the idea is th- they have no idea about who God is. They, they have all kinds of gods that they do worship. And so when they hear about Jesus and then they hear about the idea of resurrection, to them that's like those are two different gods. They, they miss the point. This is their polytheistic worldview. So in any case, they, he interested them. And verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know more of this new teaching that you're presented. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, note this here. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul's got something new. They're interested in actually hearing about it. They haven't developed cancel culture yet, but I digress. In any case, they bring him to note the Areopagus, then, to hear what he has to say. And Areopagus could be a place. that it, it, w- it was used in that way. Or it could be a, a group of authorities, like an illegal council, Here, if you note verse 22, he addresses the men of Athens, so it is uh, the idea here, he's speaking to the very leaders of the community. So Paul comes in, he's teaching something new, they want to hear about it, so these men of Athens then become his judge, at least from their mindset. Paul gets a great opportunity to then explain the gospel to them. And ultimately, give them the message of this resurrection. So he stands in their midst and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're religious, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul is now going to get ready to tell them the truth about who God is. Theology proper, if you will. They had a practice at that period of time in their superstition to try to placate the various gods, and there were some different rituals that they engaged in to where if uh, they, they, they sensed an area that they didn't understand, if there was a God or not a God, they would... Go ahead and put up a monument to the unknown God, even though they didn't know. And so there are many of those around. And Paul is going to teach them, I'll tell you about this God that you really don't know, but actually you do. That's why you keep building these idols. You get it? They know there's a God. They just don't know who exactly he is. This reminds me when he was teaching in the church of Rome in chapter 1 of Romans, where he says that God is revealing his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness because in their unrighteousness they, sus- they suppress the truth. They really know what it is, but they're suppressing it. For what can be known by God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. This word made is the same word we get poem from, poema. The idea is that do you understand how wonderfully everything is made and fits together, that it wouldn't uh, exist unless it was designed by uh, a God that is beyond this earth and this life God has clearly showed it to them so that they are without excuse there's no excuse judgment is going to come because they are rejecting God in in a general sense God has made himself known in the creation of the world and then also in the conscience of men who long for Something more meaningful, who also have an an innate idea of right and wrong. He would say, This that you worship, unknown, I'll tell you who he is. I'm going to proclaim him to you. Verse 23. He says, First, he says he is the God. Verse 24. That is, a one God unique above all others there are there is none like him there is only one and who is that god verse 24 he is the one who made the world and everything in it it is god who created everything in this world that you see he is creator god he is also verse 24 he is lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign over all. He is self-existence verse 24. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. We call this the deity of God. This is his self-existence, his independence and his absolute autonomy, which we don't have as a created being. He is the creator. Of all, And beyond that, verse 25, he is the, note there, he is the sustainer. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Do you know why you have breath? God gave it to you. You know why you have anything that you actually have that you consider, this is mine? God gave it to you. And when you die, you're not going to bring any of that with you, by the way. This then is, leads to his lesson in anthropology. He, he establishes who God is. It's a single God. He's a creator of all things. He's a sovereign over all. He gives life and breath and all, and he sustains it. And beyond that, then he, what is man? Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Man didn't evolve, man was created by God in his image, both male and female. And a rejection of that is to rebellion and rejection of who God is. It is a blasphemy against Him. It is self-destructive in our culture as we're going absolutely insane. But beyond that is a blasphemy against God. It is suppressing His truth. It is not honoring Him who He is. It is God who made every man and Note here, of one person, there is only one race, human. This, every nation here from one man, as it's mentioned, nation is the word from which we get ethnos or ethnicity. Oh, there's many ethnicities for sure. But they all came from one man, Adam, who God created. So in a sense, we're all brothers and sisters. So go ahead and adopt the world view of Athens, and you're going to get insanity and chaos and riot. The answer to it is real simple, to recognize God and what he created. One man, all ethnicities in that sense we are all connected the days then are determined by the sovereign lord he would say and even our location where you were born where you raised and even here now that you're hearing the very gospel right now wasn't by accident god determines it all there is no such thing as chance not a chance What's the purpose? Well, he'll tell us in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's not actually that far off from any one of us because God is omnipresent in that sense, right? For in him we we live and move and have our being even as some of your own parent poets had said. You, you can recognize this from your own intellect that this has to be. For we are indeed his offspring. Being God's offspring, we ought to think of the divine being, not think of the divine being like gold or silver or, or stone or an image formed by art and imagination of man. You see, the ultimate sin here is not honoring God for who he is. God has revealed himself, made himself known, and yet mankind does not seek the glory of God. Paul would explain it this way in his follow-up in Romans 1.21. I'll read it for you. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And if you don't honor God and give thanks to him, that is praise and worship to him, what will happen is judgment. God gives them over to a futile in their thinking and then their foolish hearts are darkened i I wonder a lot of times in some of the proposals and things that are going on and I'm not going to elaborate for the sake of time, even in our culture, but definitely it demonstrates futility in thinking. you know I, I look at it as how could you be that insane to want to destroy little children, for example in birth, And then as they, they raise up, then you want to destroy them by mutilating them and giving them drugs? I mean, they can't even buy alcohol until they're, what, 21? How insane. But that, that indeed is judgment, and they become foolish. They claim to be wise, but they become fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up. That's the terminology for judgment. In the lust and impurity of their own hearts, dishonoring their own bodies among themselves. That is, they'll become destructive in that behavior because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's no excuse. All of mankind is without excuse. They have the witness externally in creation, the witness internally in their own hearts, and beyond that, God now has spoken a special revelation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is now ready to throw down the hammer of the resurrection in verse 30. Okay, there was a time in which all about Christ was talked about in a future sense. He's showing them from the Scripture. But now, at this time, here in Acts 17, it's already happened. Christ has come. He has lived. He has demonstrated the, the truth of all that he said. And beyond that, he rose from the dead. So now what should the response be? Recognize there were a time in which God overlooked. He overlooked in the sense that He was patient with them. They're not dead yet. That's how you know. The, the judgment hasn't come yet. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, this is a universal charge. It isn't for one uh, religious group or another. This is all men, all people everywhere, every nation, every tribe, every tongue to turn to God because there is only one. And why? Here's the warning. He's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You don't want to be judged by righteousness. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. It doesn't measure up. Oh, measure your righteousness against this other person's righteousness and you might be more righteous. Many people are more righteous than me. I wish I was more righteous. But the one you'll be judged by is the one who is perfect. It is the righteous one. It is Jesus Christ. He will judge the world by that man whom he has appointed. That will be the measure of righteousness. How do you measure up? Well, I'm not that bad of a person. Oh, really? Compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think? He's a given assurance to them this by how? By raising that righteous one from the dead. The preacher of Hebrews would say it this way. Long ago and many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he created the world. It isn't that they're without excuse prior to the incarnation. We've already dealt with that. God is patient, but could he do any more than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Note this, beloved, God is very and we should know about his patience. It does. That's the imagery here in verse 30, the times of ignorance, in the sense that God overlooked and that he didn't bring about certain judgment because his design was to bring about salvation of many. Peter would put it this way. I'll read it for you in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But don't overlook this one fact. Beloved, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years one day. God is not bound by the constraints of time like we are. That's what he's saying. But, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Our slowness might be, well, judgment hasn't gone. It's been 2,000 years and you're preaching a resurrection of judgment. Well, what's happened? That's the point. But God doesn't go by our clock. But instead, what you should know about it is that God is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. To find safety in him. To find refuge in him. But be assured of this, judgment is absolutely certain. You know how you know it's certain? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He will go on to say the day of the Lord, and that's the day. It will come like a thief in the night. You won't expect it. It will hit you. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Exposed to what? To that righteous one, that righteous standard. Because why? Why? He has, verse 31 in our text, he has fixed a day. There is a day appointed, there is a day fixed. There is a day appointed unto man once to die, and after that, what? The judgment. Are you prepared for that fixed day, that absolute day, in which the absolute righteous measure will be Jesus Christ? There are many crying out about justice. And they want justice. I question, do you really? Thinking upon it in my own self, I don't really want justice in my life. I want mercy. Because if I got justice, I would get judgment. And all judgment is appointed to this one. One more text I want to show you because you might want to see it. We've been there before. John chapter 5. Keep your finger in Acts John chapter 5, note this, when Paul is preaching to these secular pagan intellectuals, he tells them that the judgment is going to come by this righteous one, that is the standard. It's allusion to Daniel 7, the son of man. It isn't some mythological god like the many that they might have about their land. No, it is about a single person to which all will stand before, and that is Jesus Christ. 5.25 in John. Jesus affirms here, truly, truly, amen. This is an absolute verity. I say to you, there's an hour coming and is now here. In other words, remember, he doesn't count time like we do, but it's essentially here. This is the next thing. An eschatological calendar, if you will. Judgment is coming. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is what was predicted prior. This God-man, Jesus, He says, don't marvel at this, verse 28, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This is a universal call. All will come, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You say, well, well here uh, we're all getting resurrected. There's some that do good and some that do evil. How does that square with there's none good, no, not one? There is one righteous one, it is Jesus Christ. That's the good that you want to be measured in. And the call of the gospel is to put your faith in him. Repent, what? Repent of your own works and trust Christ. That's the judgment. What what standard would Christ be looking at as judge and you come before him and you're in Christ? He said, well, let me see your righteous works. Oh, yep, I did them all. I approved them all. you're good, you're in. You want to be judged by your works? Oh, I remember what you did back then, what you thought about here. No, I would rather have mercy and grace. And grace is the gift that Christ will give. That is his goodness, his righteousness. Beloved, all this is assured because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has triumphed over the grave and demonstrated that he indeed is the righteous one. He has proven to be grace and truth incarnate. His triumph fulfills, as we've mentioned, all of that has been prophesied beforehand, that this holy one, he cannot receive corruption, Psalm 16, because he is the righteous one. His triumph demonstrates that he fulfills all of that. But it challenges the secular philosophy of that day and ours. The resurrection demonstrates that truly there is life after death. And since there is an afterlife, quote unquote, judgment is certain. All judgment will be given to this man. And only those that are sheltered in him will inherit eternal life. All outside of Christ will inherit eternal death. What's the response? Well, look at their response back at Acts chapter 17. Well, when they hear about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Looks like three responses, but there's really only two. You have rebellion and repentance. The direct rejection here, the mockery, yeah. But the delayed rejection is, we're going to hear you again. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance. Repentance. But, beloved, some did repent, and that is a blessing to them, that the resurrection will mean assurance of eternal life. But to those who rebel, it is assurance of eternal damnation. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you bless the proclamation of your word. I pray that you would use it, indeed, to bring life to any who are dead in their trespasses and sin. I pray for those that of us who are in Christ that the resurrection would be an increased blessing to know that we are safe in you, the righteous one, and assured of that by your resurrection. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'll give you a moment to think on these things where you're at before we close. Uh, If you do need to speak to any of the elders, we'll be available for you right after the service. Take a moment privately where you're at to reflect on these things. Father, I do pray that you would grant us a solid faith in Christ and him alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's
0: all stand and turn to 222. 222, all glory, Lord, and honor took palm branches shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thank you.